Welcome to They Create Worlds, Episode 3, What Makes an Industry? Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. We thought we'd start off with our third episode here, really defining a few terms. Some of them get thrown around a lot. You got things like, what is an industry? And how would you really define the video game industry? And for that matter, when did it become the video game industry? The industry started off as just an offshoot of a few different kinds of previous industries that sort of merged together into what we think of now as the video game industry. So Alex, how would you define an industry and more or less the video game industry? Well, in terms of defining an industry, an industry would be a set of companies or organizations that are all working in a very similar field to create a similar product or to achieve a similar goal. That's kind of the basic definition of what an industry is. So obviously, when you're speaking about the video game industry, you're talking about that network of companies that exist to create, market, publish, distribute, sell video games. And today, there is definitely a video game industry. There are enough companies that are kind of all pulling in that same direction that you can say that they are involved in this larger industry. However, a lot of people also try to speak of a video game industry existing in the 1970s or the 1980s or even the early 1990s, which is really an anachronistic construct because while there were obviously video games during all of those time periods, there was a lot more fragmentation. You had the console market that was very specific. You had an arcade market that was very specific. And you had a home computer game market that was very specific. And while there were certainly a few companies that involved themselves in two or more of these areas, I think it's fair to say that they were distinct enough that you couldn't say that all of these companies were necessarily involved in creating the same kind of product. And they certainly didn't commingle with each other very much either. So I don't really think you can say that there was a video game industry until you had a greater degree of cooperation and cross-pollination between these companies involved in these somewhat separate segments of video game creation. And what do you mean exactly when you say anachronistic? Well, an anachronism is when you take an idea that exists in one time period and then you transplant it to a different time period where it doesn't actually belong. Certainly one of the famous examples of this is in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar when, in one scene, a clock chimes. There were no chiming clocks in ancient Rome, so that would be an anachronism. That was something that existed in Shakespeare's time and something that the audience would identify with that he put into his script, even though it would not technically be historically accurate. So when I say it's anachronistic to refer to a video game industry before about the mid-90s, what I mean is that it's easy to see that there are companies creating video games back then and doing so in a way that's very similar to how video games are created today and kind of assume that 
the industry constructs were also in place back then. But really, you had video games being developed as offshoots of other industries at that time. You had an arcade industry that went all the way back to the 1930s, and even earlier than that, 1930s with pinball, but even back to the late 19th century in terms of coin-operated amusements of one kind or another. And so video games were just one product growing out of that continuum. You had a consumer electronics industry that was beginning to develop in the early 1970s, and home video games were somewhat of an extension of that consumer electronics industry, and these games were somewhat distinct from what was going on in the arcade. And you also, of course, had a toy industry, and video games in the home kind of alternated between being considered consumer electronics or toys. So on the other hand, you could see the video game in the home as a new kind of toy. And so it was kind of growing out of that industry. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, you kind of had a home computer game industry developing as uh, home computers started to get more sophisticated. And again, this was kind of an outgrowth of what was going on with home computers in terms of the hardware and then software made to play on that hardware. So you had different companies getting involved in these different offshoots and often not mingling with each other. So it was more separate endeavors by groups of companies rather than a coherent video game industry. They didn't all work together in order to advance the industry as a whole. You just had toy makers coming up with their own independent games and putting it out there, arcade companies putting their thing out there, so on and so forth. Exactly. Now, there were, of course, some companies that were very deeply involved, and the best example of that is Atari. Atari was the one company that was making arcade games and home games and computer games and home consoles and home computers and even, for a very brief period of time, pinball machines. They were doing a lot of marketing, too. I mean, you had a bunch of commercials that you can even look up today where it was really geared toward geeks, nerds, or any kind of gamer. I can't remember the name of the commercial offhand, but you had a whole bunch of kids who were trying to do the hard part of the game, and the boss was really super easy, and so they had the jock beat the quote-unquote hard boss, and then I believe that was just trying to appeal to all audiences in a way. But you would sort of think that would be an industry because you have Atari pretty much being the dominant force in the late 70s, early 80s, producing pretty much an industry. You have marketing, you have production, you have consoles, you got software running around, right? Of course, and I think that's part of the reason why it's very easy to look back and retroactively decide that there was a video game industry in place at that time, because you had a company like Atari that was greatly involved in all of these different areas. It would not really be accurate, though, to say that anyone else was involved, because if you look in the arcade, Atari was one of the top game companies in the arcade, but the other game companies in the arcade were all companies that went back a fairly long way. I mean, the number two company was Bally Midway, and Bally Midway was the merger of two different companies, Bally Manufacturing, which was founded all the way back in 1932, and Midway Manufacturing, that was founded back in 1958. And both of those companies were created to 
build coin-operated amusements of the electromechanical type that existed well before video games. Bally was a pinball company, a very successful pinball company in the 1930s that then expanded into gambling machines, slot machines, payout pinball machines, also into a few other areas like kiddie rides. And Midway was a company that came along a while later, and while they avoided pinball, they were making electromechanical target shooting games, and they were making pitch-and-bat baseball games. They made a shuffle alley for a few years. So these companies, when they decided to create video games, they weren't thinking, hey, let's go into this new industry called the video game industry. They were saying, okay, Atari has put out this video game, Pong, this arcade game that uses a television monitor. That's a very interesting new direction to take the arcade industry. So when Bally enters the market by licensing uh, Atari's Pong game and releasing it as winner, they're not thinking that they're joining the video game industry. They're thinking that they're inaugurating a new phase of the arcade industry. And that's the same with most of the other companies that get involved right away. And then you do get a few startups that join them in the market very quickly as well. But those startups are solely creating arcade video games. They're not creating home games. They're not creating console games or computer games. They're just a new segment of the arcade industry. So you can't really say that a video game industry began with Pong because it was really, at that point, just the next evolution of the arcade industry that already had existed for really about 100 years at that point in one form or another. They just thought it was a more sophisticated, just an evolution, and not something that would be completely independent. Exactly, and not even necessarily something that would last. Pong was very much seen as a fad, because at that time you're talking about very, very primitive technology. So about all that could be done was generating a few dots and lines on the screen. I mean, you didn't have sprites yet. Sprite-based graphics came along. Pong came out in November 1972, though Pong didn't really become big until early 1973. The first game to use sprites didn't come until about a year later in March 1974 with Grand Track 10, a driving game from Atari. So at this time, the arcade industry was somewhat fad-driven. It's necessary to go into a little bit of that background. You know, in the 1930s, pinball became the huge game, and the arcade industry was very much focused around pinball. Mm -hmm. But then a backlash occurred against pinball because coin-op got a very bad reputation because of the slot machine industry and because of prohibition. So you had slot machines, which are gambling machines, and slot machines date to the late 19th century, and they really built up ahead of steam in the early 20th century after the release of the first mass-produced three-reel slot machine, the so-called One-Arm Bandit, which was the Mills Liberty Bell. And slot machines were very popular in the early 20th century, but then they started to be outlawed because they were gambling devices. They were seen as a way to cheat people out of money. And so you had slot machines being banned in the 19-teens all around the country. Then you had Prohibition starting and continuing throughout the 1920s. And with Prohibition, you had bars and taverns closing and being replaced by illegal speakeasies. And this had the effect of bringing organized crime into the liquor business and also bringing organized crime into the tavern business with, through the illegal speakeasies. So since speakeasies were illegal operations anyway, 
there would often be slot machines and speakeasies and clubs because if you're already breaking the law by serving alcohol, what's wrong with also breaking the law by having slot machines? So then organized crime got very heavily involved in the slot machine business. And the slot machine business was the most visible portion of the wider coin-op industry. So pinball started being tarred with that same stigma. There was always this thought that pinball must be controlled by organized crime, too. And the evidence seems to indicate that that's not true. I mean, there were certainly some distributors that had backings of organized crime or some operators that had the backing of organized crime. But on a whole, organized crime wasn't involved in that industry. But because of that public perception, pinball was often banned by cities around the country. And even in places where it wasn't banned, it was often not carried by bars and taverns once Prohibition ended because they didn't want to get tarred with this negative stigma or worry about the police raiding their premises and confiscating their machines. So after World War II, the industry became very fad-driven, as in a new type of game would appear, and for a few years this new game would be popular, and then it would kind of fade into the background, and a new big game would come along, and then it would fade into the background. And this had happened with a few different things. The Shuffle Alley, which I'd mentioned a little bit earlier, was one of these types of games. It was kind of a miniature bowling game. And so Shuffle Alleys were very popular in the early 50s. And then kind of in the mid-50s, a game called Bumper Pool came along, which then became very popular for a couple of years. This is a game that is not billiards. This is not your six-hole pool table. This is a game where you just have one hole on each side of the table, and your job is to get your ball into the hole on the other side of the table, but you have a bunch of bumpers set up strategically around the table, so you can't just shoot it straight at the other hole. You have to kind of navigate through all of these bumpers to get your ball in the other side. One of my uncles actually has that game, and uh, I've actually played it. It's kind of fun. It's not as big as a standard pool table it's probably about half the size a little bit i if i recall correctly i think it's hexagonal in shape i want to say they can be sometimes though they can also be regular rectangular tables as well okay uh the one i played specifically was hexagonal and mm -hmm. it had about five bumpers in it one in the center and then four around the center one it's actually kind of fun it's sort of a different take on the game yes and those were very popular for a couple of years in the 50s and then they kind of faded away. Uh, there were target shooting games that became very popular for a while and then kind of faded away. So you kind of had this ongoing cycle. And right before Pong hit, you were kind of in an upswing in the industry with big novelty arcade pieces. So these were games that were often housed in large cabinets, and they had very advanced special effects for the time. So these were still electromechanical games. They weren't video games, but they often incorporated film projection. They often incorporated electronic sound, which was something that really couldn't be done the, in the arcade before this point. They incorporated graphics, you know, through projection screens and painted images and whatnot that were very cartoon-like, which is something that hadn't been possible before. And so the industry was going through a period where it was becoming more high-tech. And I think this was probably very important to the acceptance of the video game. But Pong was just one of several high-tech 
concepts that were coming in at the same time, and it wasn't necessarily a given that video would be the one to triumph over something that used a film script and zoetrope-style animation, or even games that didn't use a display like that at all, because at just about the same time that Pong hit big was the exact same time that both foosball and air hockey both hit big as well. And we still play those today. Exactly. But I mean, they were huge, absolutely huge for a brief period there in the early 70s as well. So it's not like Pong just came out of nowhere and was completely different from anything anyone had ever seen before and everyone just automatically flocked to it. I mean, yes, it was different than anything they had seen before, but they were used to that. They were used to seeing something come along and have a couple of popular years and then fade away. There was no reason necessarily that Pong would end up being more successful than air hockey. It makes sense as a natural uh, evolution of things. You had all this electromechanical stuff that's going on. Then you started having the advent of these computers and some of the things they can do. It only makes sense over time that this kind of technology would be incorporated more and more into electromechanical machines, if not being completely controlled by computers. Right, and it's easy to see that progression now in hindsight, but when you're right in the trenches and you're involved in an industry that is focused on the electromechanical, and when you have operators and distributors that aren't used to this kind of computer technology, they couldn't necessarily see that the industry was going to go that direction. They didn't necessarily know that the microprocessor was coming along and that graphics would get more sophisticated and that Moore's Law said that games would become more sophisticated. All they saw was suddenly all these companies are making ball and paddle games, but they seem very primitive. So where do you go from there? And the answer was maybe nowhere. And in fact, there was a Pong boom and a Pong bust because dozens of companies did get involved in creating Pong arcade games. And then in 1974, the market kind of fell apart because... That's all anyone was making was Pong clones, essentially. There were very few original game concepts. And then the video game market declined rather precipitously that year. And then it started growing again after that, but at a much slower pace. And at the same time, the sophistication allowed by solid-state devices and microprocessors was also being applied to the pinball industry. So then in the mid-1970s, pinball came roaring back and was actually the biggest draw in the arcade in the mid-70s, far more so than video games. I mean, there were a few successful video games that sold a lot of units. Seawolf, a midway game, a submarine target shooting game, probably being about the biggest one with 10,000 units sold, and then Atari's Breakout, which was another ball and paddle variant that also sold about you know, 10,000, 11,000 units. But it was really solid-state pinball that was taking the lead then. And so, again... There wasn't a video arcade game industry. It's just that you had video games in the arcade coexisting with other products like solid state pinball machines and foosball and air hockey and all of that. And you didn't necessarily know that that was something that was going to last. It really wasn't until Space Invaders hit and then was followed by Asteroids after that the next year that. Finally, it looked like video games were actually something that was here to say, stay and not just a passing arcade fad. That makes sense. You did use the word industry back then when you were talking about electromechanical and the arcade. When do you think would be the really big breaking point between 
the arcade level of industry where it more transitioned into a video game industry. So you have to take a step back then again, because the arcade industry has kind of always been its separate beast and video games have always been a part of it. There was all obviously, of course, a brief time in what's called the golden age of arcade games, where video games basically were the entire industry, kind of 1981 to 1983 or so, give or Mm -hmm. take. And even after that, the arcade games, the video arcade games would still be part of the arcade industry going forward. Pinball made a bit of a comeback in the mid 80s. And so there was a kind of a mix of video and pinball and then in the late 80s redemption games came in the kind of games where you put in a coin and hope that uh, something happens in this contraption and you win some tickets or you win a prize you know really quick coin in reward out kind of games that don't take much skill so there's always this arcade industry when you start getting a video game industry is when you get cross-pollination between the different types of industries making video games. So the arcade industry that we were talking about is one facet of it. Then, of course, you have the home video game industry, which starts in, really starts in 1975 when Pong comes into the home. There was the Magnavox Odyssey before that, 1972, but as it was one product in the market with no imitators, that's nothing. That's a single product that sold just a small number of units. It becomes more of a novelty at that point. Exactly. So you have a home industry develop in the middle of the 70s, which is at that point really a consumer electronics industry, because the kind of companies you see getting involved at this point are largely makers of consumer electronics. Magnavox is a television company. National Semiconductor and Fairchild and RCA, which all put out systems, are all companies involved in creating semiconductors. You have Atari in the market, of course, which crosses all segments, as we discussed earlier. And you also have Coleco in the market, which is a toy company. So you have a couple of companies coming in from elsewhere. But if you look at it in that time, it's really on a line with calculators and digital watches. It's kind of this consumer electronics boom and bus cycle that's happening in the 1970s that I imagine we'll talk about in more detail at a later date. So you have kind of a consumer electronics industry outgrowth. And then when the systems become programmable, you start getting a shift and it becomes more of a toy market at that point. The original Atari Pong system was marketed through Sears and it was actually marketed through their sporting goods department initially. Really? Yes. The sporting goods department. The sporting goods department was the only department interested in taking the game. And the reason for that was the sporting goods department in the winter months when people aren't out there playing baseball or, you know, throwing a ball around in a field turned partially into a table game market. So, I mean, you're still selling products like basketballs or footballs or whatever, but you're also selling games like table tennis and pool in the sporting goods department because you're trying to make up for the fact that you don't have those outdoor sales in the the colder months. So you just try to supplement it with indoor sport. Exactly. So they sold table tennis tables to sporting goods. So remember now the first home video game we're talking about here is Pong, Home Pong. 
so that's a recreation of table tennis. So since they are already selling the table version, the real-life version of table tennis, it made sense to them to augment that by selling the inside-the-house video version of that. And this is a period of time when you might find the video game system in the rec room, in the so-called rec room of the house, which was something people did in the 70s, rather than in, say, your living room. So it kind of makes sense as another piece of equipment that you'd have in your recreation room in addition to your weightlifting equipment or your pool table or whatever else you're storing in there that you're buying from your sporting goods department. So it sounds kind of ridiculous to us today, but within the context of the time, it does make a little bit of sense. Now, it would have made much more sense to sell it through Sears Electronics Department, I think, but they weren't interested. And it would have really made sense to sell it through toy stores, perhaps, but Toy stores weren't interested, though this was perhaps partially Atari's fault. Atari took Home Pong to the Toy Fair, which is the premier show where all the toy companies display their products for the new year. It's the Consumer Electronics Show, or the E3, of the toy industry. Happens at the beginning of the year, January or February, around then. And they took the product to Toy Fair, but they didn't understand the consumer industry because they were an arcade company. They didn't understand how to approach distributors with a product. They didn't understand how to take orders. And so they ended up coming away with no orders, but that was partially because they didn't know how to solicit orders. So toy companies turned them down, electronic companies turned them down, but they got into sporting goods. So at first it's this consumer electronics thing. Then with the programmables, it starts becoming more of a toy thing because you have Mattel following Atari into the market. Then you have Parker Brothers becoming a software developer. They never developed their own system, but they developed software. You had Coleco come in with their programmable system. You had Milton Bradley come in with a system, the Vectrex. So now suddenly you have a bunch of toy companies involved because this is a system being marketed at basically 6 to 12-year-olds. So it becomes very much part of the toy industry, and Toys R Us becomes one of the major players in the industry in terms of the retailers. And Sears and JCPenney's and other department stores remain major players as well. And so then it kind of becomes part of the toy industry for that reason. So that's kind of your home console market. Then, of course, you have your computer game market, which is almost completely separate at this point because the evolution here is very different rather than these very sophisticated pieces of electronics having to be built in order to enter the industry, just about anybody with a small amount of programming knowledge can enter the computer game industry because the barriers to entry are very low because you're just putting this stuff onto floppy disks and floppy disks are very cheap. And in the very early days, you didn't even need packaging. Packaging was a Ziploc bag and a Ziploc bag is very cheap. A Ziploc bag, a printout, and a disk. Exactly. So you had a very strong hobbyist element becoming involved in this industry rather than big companies getting involved in this industry. So that was its completely separate thing, and they were selling through completely different avenues. I mean, sometimes they might get a product into a toy store, but they were more often than not, at this point, selling through computer stores, specialized retailers that were just for the computer industry and 
didn't have anything to do with video games or arcade games and any of that stuff. So that's a completely separate industry as well, but they're creating the same kind of games because many of the earliest home computer games were just clones of the popular arcade video games at the time. Space Invaders clones and Pac-Man clones and Defender clones and, you know, on and on and on. Obviously, there were other genres as well drawn from different disciplines, but that was a big part of it. So these games are really, almost in a way, you could argue that they almost developed independently of each other, where you have arcade sort of saying, okay, let's take some of this computing technology and make some video games with it. We're going to take some of that computer technology, miniaturize it, and then put it into this box, and we'll create this home user game that you can play with. We can also then say, hey, in the computer industry itself, hey, we got this computer that's already doing spreadsheets and who knows what else. Let's also make a game for it. We want to do whatever with it. From the way you're making it sound is that just by the facet of computer technology becoming available on the microprocessor, all three industries into of themselves have been able to create a video game for them that works best for their industry or more or less an extension of their industry. Sure, I think it's fair to say that. And certainly there's some cross-pollination. Obviously, this is not occurring in a vacuum. Atari is very big in the arcade, and Atari is very big in the home. And the home industry owes pretty much—the home console industry, I should say—pretty much owes its entire existence to the arcade industry because virtually all of the big hits in the home during this period of time are arcade games first. There are a few original concepts appearing here and there. But you're mostly just talking about Pong gets big in the arcade, then Pong is converted to the home. Space Invaders gets big in the arcade, then Space Invaders is converted to the home. Pac-Man gets big in the arcade, Pac-Man's converted in the home. On and on and on. And you might get a few games that have slightly unique gameplay or a slightly unique title, but for the most part, these are clones of the arcade games too, with very little to differentiate them. So there's pretty close ties in terms of the gameplay and the types of games being done in the arcade and in the home console market. But the thing is, is that the companies are mostly separate. Obviously, Atari's in both. Bally very briefly tries to be in both in 1977 and 1978 when they create a home console called the Astrocade. Well, it's originally called the Bally Home Computer Library. It's later called the Astrocade. But that system sinks like a lead balloon, and so it's not around for very long, so Bally is not in the home. Their games are, because they license their games to other companies, but Bally itself is not in the home. Williams, another important arcade company, is not in the home. Sega, not in the home. And so even though their games find a place there, the companies don't, which is why they're not part of the same industry, really. And their games are being marketed in different ways. Arcade games are not marketed to the general public. The first time, probably, that an arcade game was really marketed to the general public was 1982, when Sega ran a television commercial for Zaxxon. And there may have been a few ads here and there, print ads or whatever, geared towards the general public before that, but for the most part, you marketed the games to distributors and operators because they're the ones that are buying the game. Obviously, 
your consumer isn't buying arcade games because these are, you know, $1,500, $2,000 systems that are being put in a public place. So the marketing was done to the operators and distributors. The way that the players saw the game is they would go down to their local arcade and they would just check out what was new and they might, you know, scan the attract modes to see the games playing themselves to see what looks interesting or they might peer over the shoulder of somebody who's already playing a game and that's how games were advertised to the players. Obviously, the home console market is targeting consumers directly. So they're taking out print ads, they're taking out television ads, they're going straight after the consumer. So there's not a big intersection in marketing. They're also not presenting their products in the same forums. The arcade industry has its own shows, like the Music Operators of America show, where they are premiering their games to operators and distributors, whereas the home console companies are going to the Consumer Electronics Show to interest buyers at department stores and the like. So that's completely different. So you don't see arcade games and console games being marketed in the same places. What about computers? You're going over the arcade being marketed to distributors and you got the home consoles being marketed to the general public. Is the computer market also just the general public? Exactly. Again, with computers, it's more the general public. And what sets the computer industry apart is that these are being marketed to a more tech-savvy class. You do get a home computer industry going late in this period. Kind of 1982-1983 is where you get a home computer market that's more aimed at the general public going. But you're talking about a more specialist audience here, because when you boot up an Apple II, all you see when you turn that thing on is a green cursor. Mom and Dad, who at this time are probably not very computer savvy because there were no computers 10 years ago, aren't <laughs> going to know what the heck to do when they just see a green cursor blinking on the screen. So this is a market that is very focused on a particular subset of the population that's interested in learning this technology rather than a general public that can enjoy an arcade game or a console game, whether they're tech-savvy or not. They can kind of figure out how to move the joystick left and right. The barrier to entry for computers for the user is much higher than, say, a home console where I just plug this into my television and it just plays. Or exactly. the arcade where I just go in, I put in my quarter, I can just start playing. Exactly. So console games are sold in this time at mass market retailers, department stores, toy stores, discount houses. Computers, for the most part, are not. Now, this changes in the early 80s when Commodore really starts getting their machines into Kmart, for instance. So computers are going to head that direction in a couple of years. But if we're talking the late 70s or the very beginning of the 80s, you're talking about computers and computer games only appearing in specialty stores. Computerland. Radio Shack, places like that. The true electronic hobbyist. Exactly. And it takes a lot more patience to figure out what you're doing with those games. You can't just necessarily start them right away. And you do get the arcade-type games going on in there, as I said before, but then you also get the deeper games. You get the role-playing games. You get the text adventure games. So you're... Marketing, in addition to that crowd that likes the action games, you're also marketing to a more cerebral crowd 
a crowd that's sometimes an older crowd as well, whereas video games in the home are really about a 6- to 12-year-old market, and arcade games are targeted at kind of a teenage market. Home computer games run the gamut. You might have some younger kids that are interested in this stuff, but because of the greater sophistication of some of these text adventures and RPGs, you're also talking about college students or even people in their late 20s, early 30s that are also getting interested in these games. So very different demographics between all of those markets, including the home computer. Okay, at this point, we've, we pretty much established everything as to what the three trisecta of industries. When did these three sort of break off and sort of merge together into its own industry? Well, as I kind of mentioned before, I would say that probably the mid-90s is when it really happened, but that wasn't the first time that there was an attempt to do so. There was beginning to be convergence in the early 1980s, because you had a few things going on by that point. First of all, by the early 1980s, both video arcade games and home console games were really, really big businesses. The arcade was absolutely exploding. The arcade industry in 1982, probably, and again, these are all estimates, we never know exactly for certain. In the coin-op market, it's really bad because oftentimes companies would actually under-report their income from their games because since it was a cash-only business, it was kind of easy to avoid taxes if you were kind of vague on how much you were actually making because there was no paper trail. So operators probably generally under-reported how much their games were making. But depending on which magazine source you look at and where the estimates are coming from, coin-operated games made somewhere between 7 and $9 billion in 1982. Now that is insane in 1982 money. That is far more than the motion picture industry was making at the time. That was far more than the record industry was making at the time. That was far more than all of the professional sports leagues, MLB, NFL, NBA, etc., combined were making at the time. I mean, this was one of the absolute largest entertainment businesses in the United States of America. And that's why in a lot of old movies, especially ones from the 80s, you see gigantic buildings dedicated to nothing but row upon row upon row of arcade machines. That's right. I mean, this was huge. This was the primary form of entertainment for teenagers, quite frankly, during this period of time. and. Of that $7 billion to $9 billion in quarters that were being taken in, almost all of that was going to video games. Probably between 80 and 90% of that was going to video games because video games had basically crowded everything else out of the market. Pinball still existed, and pinball would become very big again in the mid-80s, but for that brief period of time, pinball was virtually non-existent, and everything else you might find in an arcade was in even worse shape. So... When you're saying 7 to 9 billion, that was almost entirely in video games. So video games got huge in the arcade. In the home, video games weren't quite as big a business. But even in the home, you're still talking about a business that was in excess of $2 billion a year and getting up to a peak of over $3 billion a year. So these were both very big businesses that companies wanted to be involved in. So the coin-op companies saw how much money 
companies like Atari and Coleco were making licensing their video games and selling them in the home and decided, why should we let them have the majority of the profits from that and just take a royalty? Let's create our own home console divisions as well. And so you had Bally, Bally Midway, the biggest of the arcade companies, started making their own home games. Now, they're not making their own console at this point. They're just making cartridges for the existing consoles, mostly the VCS. But they're starting to make their own home games. And Sega does the same thing. Sega establishes their own home console division because they want to get involved in that as well. So now you're starting to see this cross-pollination because companies that had previously only concerned themselves what was going on in the arcade are now paying attention to what's going on in home console. And meanwhile, you have the same thing happening on the home computer side because home computer games, if you had a hit home computer game at that time, you're probably selling 50 to 100,000 units. Part of that is because it's a smaller market, because it's a specialist market, because there's that barrier to entry we discussed. Part of it is also because of piracy, because copying a disc is pretty darn easy. Really easy. (laughs) The copyright back then, if you actually played some of the old Commodore games, which you can actually find ROMs of, they have all sorts of interesting little tricks. They would do things like, okay, I want you to look up the fifth word of the 20th paragraph on page 726 of my user manual, amongst other things, where they had a special key card that said, okay, I need key card value number 20, and give me the manual word for this. Right. Uh, You certainly had that, but, you know, in the early 80s, there was much less of that. I mean, there were attempts at doing copy protection, of course, back then as well, but not nearly as sophisticated, and so piracy was quite rampant, as piracy has usually been quite rampant on PC. So there was a great incentive for companies involved in the PC business to get involved in the console market. Now, the console market has a lower barrier of entry for the general public, but it has a much higher barrier of entry for a company because you have to produce cartridges, and cartridges are very expensive to make. And you have to make a lot of them. You have to order them in bulk. And you have to make sure that you order enough on the first go-around to satisfy demand because the lead time to manufacture a cartridge is so long, 30 to 90 days, that if you don't make enough cartridges to satisfy your market when your game comes out, by the time you can reorder and get more cartridges into the market, your game is probably already yesterday's news, so nobody wants to buy it anymore. So it's far more expensive to get into the console game business than it is to get into the computer game business. But by 1982, the leading companies in the computer game industry, like Online Systems, which was at that time just changing its name to Sierra Online, or Broderbund, or Sirius Software, were making enough money now that they could take the risk of making a commitment in cartridges in terms of buying the cartridges. And this meant that they could attempt to tap into this much more lucrative market, which was home video games. So now you have Sirius Software, which is a company that isn't very well remembered today, but was actually one of the premier Apple II game developers at that time, making a deal with 20th Century Fox in order to get into the video game market, the VCS market. You have Sierra Online taking venture capital money to get into the 
console market. You have uh, Bruderboon, which didn't actually end up getting into the console market, but they also explored getting venture capital money so that they could get involved in this home console market. So now you're starting to get some blurring of the lines here. And then this becomes even more of a blurring of the lines when home computers start becoming a mass market item. Commodore International really makes the push to turn the computer into an everyday home appliance. They really push the educational benefits of a computer. They push the organizational benefits of a computer, like storing your recipes on a computer. Nobody ever stores your recipes on a computer, but not even for today. a time there. Not even today, but for a time people thought that they would. So you see, dad can use his computer for work. He can bring his spreadsheets home and do the business. Mom can store her recipes on the computer and balance her checkbook on the computer so it becomes a domestic helper. And little Johnny can learn basic math or whatever he's learning on the computer as an educational product. And of course, they're pushing games. But when you're selling it to mom and dad, you don't push the games. You push the educational value. Of course. And in fact, computer ads of this time are very interesting because they usually show the computer in a family space. They usually show it on the coffee table or even on the kitchen table or the kitchen counter. They don't show it in the study. They don't show it in this out-of-the-way place. They show it in the heart of the family gathering place. And they usually show the whole family gathered around the computer and smiling and you know having a great time with it because the idea is this is a device for everybody in the house. And Commodore really starts pushing on getting their machine into Kmart, getting their machine into other mass market retailers, and lowering the price, making it a more desirable item on price than it had been in the past. And it's really starting to look like to a lot of companies that computers are actually where the video game industry is going to go to, that the video game is just a toy, whereas the computer is both a toy and a practical appliance, you know, two things in one, so therefore it has more value. So Atari was the first of the home console companies to enter the computer market, and they did so far before any other home console companies did. They were very prescient on that, doing it back in 1979. But then in 1982, 1983, Mattel decides they're going to get into the home computer market with the Aquarius. Coleco decides that they're going to get into the home computer market with the infamous Atom computer that ended up being a complete disaster. So you have computer game companies starting to make console games. You have console companies starting to make home computers. You have arcade companies starting to pay more attention to what's going on in the home market and starting to make some of their own properties in that market rather than licensing them. All of it's becoming very homogenized. If I want to have a consistent gaming experience across all three, I want to be able to take Pac-Man and play the really fancy version at the arcade, but I don't want to waste my quarters there. If I buy this Pac-Man game and I bring it home and play it on my television, I can get really good there before I go to the arcade and get that high score and beat my friends there. 
I can practice at home with my home console. Or if I have my own home computer, if I'm that kind of sophisticated, I can then practice on that and I have better graphics, better sound, better whatever, which is more like how it is when I'm in the arcade. Exactly. And you're starting to get media paying attention to this cross-pollinization too. You start getting your first magazines dedicated to the video game player. The very first one being Electronic Games. And Electronic Games reports on happenings going on in the arcade market. They report on happenings going on in the console market and even a little bit on happenings going on in the computer market. And, you know, even the name Electronic Games shows that this is not just looking at arcades or just looking at the home. It's looking at the totality. So you're starting to get this idea going of unification. You're not there yet. You're not even close because you're still talking pretty distinct markets. You're still talking uh, marketing products to distinct groups at distinct separate shows. So you don't have an industry yet, but you're on the cusp of it. And then the crash happens. The great and terrible video game crash of 1982, 1983, 1984 in there, which actually also is joined by a crash in the arcade industry that starts a little sooner, starting in mid-1982. And then, after the video game crash has pretty much started playing out, you have the home computer price wars that causes the home computer market to enter problems. So these are three separate events that take place in three separate segments of the industry, but in overlapping periods of time. And so, at the end of it, everybody is licking their wounds if they haven't been chased away entirely. And so the market fragments again. Arcades pull back from video a little bit. Video is still a significant part of what's going on, but pinball makes a comeback, and there's a more even split between video and pinball in the arcade. Home console market just vanishes. There's a couple-year period there where home consoles just essentially aren't a thing anymore. Now, there's still games in the stores. There's still systems in the stores, but Retailers are basically just clearing out excess inventory, so it's heavily discounted material in the bargain bin. It's $30 games going for $3. So video games essentially go away, though you can still buy discounted games in the store. Home computers retrench and refocus on that older audience, kind of the idea of the mass market computer taking over the family kitchen goes away at this point. There's still a market for computers and computer games, but this kind of dream of the mass market computer goes away for a time. It comes back in the late 80s, early 90s, but for a time here it goes away. So you see the arcade-style games, the action games, kind of really disappear from the home computer. There are a few exceptions. Epics has great success with their games series, summer games, winter games, world games, California games. And you have a couple of other companies involved in action products, but it really becomes a market for sophisticated games like military strategy games, military simulation games, flight simulators, tank simulators, submarine simulators, computer RPGs, and adventure games, both of the text variety and now uh, starting to be the animated graphical variety as well. Now, I should emphasize that when I say all of that, I'm strictly talking about the United States. The computer game market in Europe was very, very different. But at this time, Europe was entirely its own thing. So when we're talking about a video game industry at this time, we're really talking about the, or the 
proto-video game industry that almost came into being in the early 80s. We're talking about strictly in the United States. We're not talking about what's going on in Japan or what's going on in Europe. Okay, so from that point, let's move ahead. We almost had a building of the industry in the 80s, but when we hit the uh, mid-90s, 94, 95, what was really the trigger that then started to bring all three of these together? And at what point can you say, yes, that is when we are an industry. That is when video games are their own industry. They are not an offshoot of arcade. They're not an offshoot of computers. They're not an offshoot of home consoles. So basically what happens is, you know, home console games go away for a while. Nintendo brings them back with the Nintendo Entertainment System in the late 80s. Nintendo is very much seen as a toy, and it's definitely part of the toy industry. And Nintendo has a monopoly in the market, so even though Atari and Sega are also producing systems in this period of time, they really don't matter very much. What happens in the early 90s is that Sega comes into the market, and Sega succeeds in challenging Nintendo and even barely beating them out in market share in the United States and more substantially beating them out in market share in the United Kingdom. They market to an older crowd. They go after teenagers rather than that 6 to 12 market, the same demographic that the arcades go after. And they succeed in creating kind of another force in home games. So you kind of have these two competing forces in Nintendo and Sega. Then at the same time, you have graphics becoming more sophisticated, and so you have the first games that offer a degree of realism in their graphics. We wouldn't call most of it very realistic today, but compared to the sprites of the time, you know, very realistic. You have the first digitized graphics coming into the arcades where you're actually taking film footage and turning it into pixel art, and so it looks much more realistic. We're talking about games like Mortal Kombat now. You have full motion video games coming in because you have CD-ROM coming in, and so that allows you to incorporate video in games like the infamous Night Trap. And so you have a maturing audience, and you have maturing graphics, and you have gorier games coming along like Mortal Kombat, and you have a public that still sees video games as toys for children, which they are, but they're also toys for older people as well at this point. But, you know, the public lags behind on this new trend. This culminates in the famous congressional hearings in December 1993, in which Herb Cole and Joe Lieberman decide that they're going to rake the industry over the coals for peddling violence to children in the forms of games like Mortal Kombat and Night Trap. So at this time, the home console companies are represented by the Software Publishers Association, the SPA. Mm -hmm. The SPA represents Nintendo and Sega. They also represent the computer game companies. But they also represent Microsoft. They represent Lotus. They represent Ashton Tate. They represent Borland International. They represent all the big operating system companies, application companies, language companies. As popular as games are, the real money in software is still with those kind of professional application companies. So the SPA is not geared towards representing entertainment companies. 
And as a result, they do a pretty piss poor job of lobbying on behalf of the video game companies. If there had been an effective lobbying element in Washington on behalf of video games in the early 90s, it's quite possible that the video game hearings would have been headed off at the past, or at least if they had still occurred, they would have been more balanced than the very negative focus on violent video games. So the industry came out of those hearings with kind of two problems. One, they didn't have an effective lobbying presence in Washington, and two, Washington was now telling them that they needed to start self-regulating or the government would get involved and do the regulation for them. So this required companies like Nintendo and Sega to come together and decide what they could do to protect everybody, because everybody would lose out if the government got directly involved. So these companies came together and formed their own lobbying organization, the Interactive Digital Software Association, or IDSA. They put together a ratings board, the Electronic Software Ratings Board, ESRB, to come up with a rating system for games, and they kind of forced everyone to get involved in that. Now, there was a lot of fighting. There were a lot of companies that wanted to go their own way. The computer game companies, some of them had already been sort of doing their own rating system, and so there was some thought that they might just keep doing that. Sega had just recently instituted its own rating system, and there was some thought that they might try to force their system onto everybody else, but that didn't happen. But because you had all of these tensions that kind of had to be worked out, finally all of these companies rallied together around the lobbying organization, the IDSA, and around the Electronic Software Ratings Board. So now you had some organizations that specifically catered to the video game industry, mostly in its home console and computer game form, Arcades are kind of always still off being their own thing a little bit. And then, once they did that, they started taking other steps. So at this time, home console games and home console systems tended to be debuted at the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, where they were right next door to all the refrigerators and washing machines and car alarms. And because video games were kind of a Johnny-come-lately as compared to, say, a refrigerator or a car alarm, they were kind of the stepchildren of the event. So even though they were becoming kind of the largest part of the Consumer Electronics Show, they were always kind of relegated to the poorer areas. And then finally, in 1994, they were relegated to a tent outside. Hmm. And it rained. Oh, dear. Yeah, that wasn't good. So Tom Kalinske, president of Sega, got fed up with that and was like, look, we've got to have our own show. And now that we have our own lobbying organization, which has a membership, which is paying dues, we have the financial wherewithal to create our own industry-wide show. And CES tried to keep the video game companies in their camp. They proposed creating a separate CES show, CES 2, that was completely dedicated to video games that met at a different time of year in a different city. And... Nintendo was kind of feeling like that might be a good idea, whereas Sega, because Sega and Nintendo can never do the same thing in this time period, they can't agree, was like, no, 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 we're not staying with CES, we're going to do our own show entirely. And finally, that's the way it went, and so they created the Electronic Entertainment Expo, E3, which had its first show in 1995. So now you have the majority of the companies in home video games and computers 
kind of in lockstep because they're locked in through these organizations that they share. They're starting to debut their products at the same shows. They're starting to pass all their products through the same ratings board to get a rating. They're meeting with the same lobbyists to advance their agenda in Washington. And at the same time, you're getting that same cross-pollination that happened in the early 1980s. You have companies that are heavily involved in both the arcades and in the home. The Japanese companies had been that way ever since the NES, but now the American companies were starting to get involved in both places as well. Williams, at this point, one of the last major American arcade game companies left, arcade video game companies left, decides to get involved in making their own home games, whereas Acclaim and Electronic Arts, the two largest uh, American home console companies, decide that because so many of the hits are coming out of the arcades that they're going to make their own coin-op divisions. Neither coin-op division lasts very long, but the point is they're getting involved in the arcade. And you have home computer game companies that are starting to experiment with publishing on console, Interplay Productions probably being one of the most prominent there. You have console companies that are porting their games over to the home computer and vice versa. Electronic Arts was in the 80s a computer game company only, but now at the beginning of the 90s is also on home console. So you have the same cross-pollination going on that was happening right before the crash in the early 80s. But on top of that now, you have the trade show, the lobbying organization, the ratings organization, all of these groups that are binding these companies together to each other. And I would say that that is when you really get a video game industry. So it really, I would almost amend how you would define an industry as you are an industry when you have a group of companies that band together, that have their own lobbying group, maybe have their own self-regulating board, and maybe even their own trade show. Well, at least the companies involved in the industry have to have some kind of common ties that are binding them together. It doesn't necessarily have to be a lobbying organization per se, though that's certainly one aspect of it. But they have to be tied to each other through something larger than themselves, I think, in order to really be part of an industry. All right, that makes sense. We'll amend that further to be a group of related companies that have potentially a lobbying group, a trade show, and self-regulation. And that would really what brings an industry together. A bunch of companies under a common goal that have those three aspects that really help drive the product they're trying to sell forward. Exactly. And once you have the IDSA and E3, you're no longer an appendage of the toy industry. You're no longer an appendage of the consumer electronics industry. You're no longer living off the scraps that you pull out of the video arcade. You're no longer an appendage of the home computer industry. You are taking all of these forms of interactive entertainment that are played on some kind of screen using some kind of interactive control system, and you're blending them all together and now you have a video game industry. Well, that makes sense. And I think that's a good point to wrap up this conversation. And we will see you next time. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is 
Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.